This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. The BFM Breakfast Grill, connecting you to top people and ideas. Powered by U-Mobile, Malaysia's number one 5G network. I'm Wong Xiaoning and this is The Breakfast Grill. Global outstanding suku is approximately 850 billion US dollars as at the end of 2023, up 10.3%, although there was a fall in overall new issuances, irrespective of currencies on the back of the high rate environment and the geopolitical triggers. However, it is expected that the global suku market will exceed 1 trillion as Shara-compliant financial instruments become increasingly mainstream. Joining me to discuss the outlook for the global sukuk market and how Malaysia can retain its position as a top issuer is Bashar Anato. He is Global Head of Islamic Finance, of course also the Managing Director of Fitch Ratings. Thank you for coming on our show again. Now, I want to start with your views on global macroeconomics because we seem to be living in rather strange times. The world is still waiting for this US recession that hasn't materialised. Swaps are pricing in a 90 basis point cut to Fed fund rate while brand crude is about 80 US dollars a barrel. Really, what impact has all this had on the global Sukkot market? Uh, thank you very much for having me again and it's a pleasure always to be with you. I think you're starting at the right place and for me, when you're looking at Sukuk, you need to be mindful that uh, it has two dimensions that really have impact on it. The first dimension is the global picture because it's linked to the international investor. The second dimension is more of the local and in, in regions where you have Islamic finance, which has a little bit different dynamics. Let me maybe explain that a little bit more. So you've talked about U.S. inflation, you've talked about growth, you've talked about oil prices, you've talked about uh, interest rates. Yes, all of these, they do play a factor. In, in, in many uh, different ways. I'll give you an example. Many of the GCC countries, their currencies is pegged to the US dollar. So the actual interest rates prevailing in the US is prevailing in many of these countries because of the peg. Uh, another dimension, oil prices. Oil prices really have an impact on the uh, funding needs of many oil exporters. Uh, so if it's high, funding needs are less. If it's low, funding needs are more. And here we're talking about oil exporters. On the other hand, you have issuers of Sukuk that are oil importers. The picture could be uh, somewhat difference where they will have a, a difference. So what we've seen in, in 2023 and before with high interest rates, that did not really uh, a full stop for the market because of various dynamics. So the first dynamic that I would like to talk to is that the investor. And here you have three types of investors. You have the international investor, you have the regional investor, and here I'm talking mostly about the GCC, and then you have the local investor in each market. Now, the international investor and their appetite to emerging markets in general is definitely very much correlated. One of the, the factors that's correlated to is the interest rates. And the higher the interest rates and the uh, hard currencies, the appetite for emerging market debt becomes less. Now, the forecast for the coming year is for uh, coming years is a declining interest rates in the US. So from an international investor point of view, the appetite for emerging debt could be uh, supported by lower interest rates in the, in the dollar, for example, and other hard currencies. Uh, if you're looking at the regional investor, the picture is different. The liquidity of Islamic banks it plays a key role. So why are we talking about banks? Because Islamic banks in the GCC are actually the main segment and the main investors. And their liquidity position impacts the appetite, regardless of what's happening in the global market. As we are heading into this rate-cutting cycle, 
what will the so-called pricing trend be? Because we had a bit of a mini rally in 2023, but then we've had some pullback since the beginning of the year. So in, as I said, many of these countries, their currency is pegged to the US dollar and the actual interest rates is correlated uh, more or less to what's happening there. Um, although Sharia compliance uh, instruments do not have uh, interest and they have profits, however, the benchmark used is still interest. Mm. So you, you have to bear around. So I would say the correlation is more or less similar with few exceptions. So I also noticed another area of growth has been sustainable Sukkot with a jump of issuances last year, albeit coming from a low base. Is Islamic finance a natural partner for the sustainability agenda? Okay. The, you, you need to... That's a, I mean, the trend that you've noted is we've been seeing that for the past four or five years, and we expect that trend to continue. And I think the right answer is that what you're posing now. Should we assume that it is there? I think there is three dimensions to that. There is one dimension where it is positive, and that dimension is the negative filter. So Islamic finance by nature will not allow tobacco, will not allow pornography, will not allow gambling. You will not have these type of elements in a sukuk or in Islamic finance in general, by de facto and by nature. So you have a negative filtering that is already embedded there. And that is the same for many ethical and, 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 and sustainable uh, sukuk so, or bonds. So you have here a positive. And then there is the uh, part that I like to say neutral. Neutral is the impact. So what I've talked about is the filtration or the negative filtering. But does that mean that the sukuk is green? Does it mean it's blue? Mm. No. You need to go the extra mile in a similar way to the conventional to achieve that impact side of it. Yeah, so I think this is something that you need to be mindful of. Yes, so in, in, the, in that sense, right, how do you ensure the structure of the sukkot works in such a way that maybe perhaps a consideration is a prof, potential profit rate adjustment linked to a, like a predefined list of sustainability indicators or perhaps their performance targets linked to an ESG goal of a company. I mean, is that possible? It's possible, but the vast majority of sukuk that we have, they don't have that. Mm. So the, 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 the performance of the profit rates in the sukuk that specifically we rate on the sustainable side, and we rate around more than 80% of US dollar sustainable sukuk globally, it doesn't have these things that, okay, if you've done that, then it will have a cut. The vast majority of them, they don't have that. Okay. Saying we're going to be funding this project that has this and this and this, or this is based on that uh, uh, green assets or what have you. So we're not seeing that that side of the equation where you say, okay, sustainability link, ESG link. No, you're saying sustainable support, you're saying green support. In Malaysia and the local market, we have, we've seen some of these, they're not rated by us, but we've seen some of these transactions, but they're not the majority, certainly if you're looking at the uh, at the global uh, US dollar uh, support. But it, it, there is nothing that prevents Sukuk from having that you need to come up with the right structure that complies with Sharia, but I think there is not, not yet uh, the market did not reach yet that maturity and requirement more from the investor side to uh, see more of these. But at the same time, how do we ensure that there is no greenwashing for these sustainable sukkot, especially if they come from oil-producing GCC countries? Okay, so, so I would say greenwashing is not an issue related only to sukkot. Yes, it's, it's, it's even is for in, equities, right? It, Exactly. So, so greenwashing is a phenomenon. I think uh, Sukuk is exposed to it in a similar way 
compared to a bond, but with an extra dimension. If you remember when I've talked about the negative filtration, you have things that is embedded in the DNA of systemic finance that prevents you from doing certain things. These things are not on the green side. So we're not saying they're on the impact side. They're saying, okay, they're not this and this and this. Going the extra mile and having that impact side, you will need to have the same flavor that you have for a conventional bond to see is it doing that or not. So I would not say that it has that aspect, but at least you have an additional lens, which is the Sharia lens, looking at this from a Sharia saying, okay, you're not supposed to do this and this and this. And if you're not doing this, let alone from greenwashing, you're not being Sharia compliant. Mm. So it has another dimension of, I would say, governance structure that adds to the layer that could be beneficial, but not efficient to eliminate the greenwashing from the suku. You need to have the same um, they are exposed to the same issues there as a regular bond. Okay, Bashar, I also know this is another development, which is, of course, it's back to the issue of whether there's any standardization when it comes to what qualifies as a sukkot, right? But I understand that there is a potential adoption of the Accounting and Auditing Organization for Islamic Financial Institutions, our fee Sharia standard in sukkot regulation. Is this the way forward for Islamic capital markets? Will they be an acceptance of what they say is Standard 62, which I, I believe is still in drafting stage? Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting thing. So we've seen in, in the past very few years Standard 59 coming from Eofi and what that had its own story. We can have a full episode discussing that and, and the implication of that. Now, as you correctly said, there is Standard 62 that is in draft format. For us, we're monitoring the implication of that uh, mainly on adoption. So issuing a standard by itself, okay, we know what's there, what it could entail, but the real test for it is who's going to adopt it, because not everyone adopted, and not only that, how are they going to adopt it, because that varies significantly. So the way that each regulator, regulator, if there is a decision to adopt, and the way that they adopted, we will assess the implication of that, not only, by the way, on the on, on the investor's uh, side, but also on the issuer side, because this could have actually limitation for um, uh, issuer. For example, transferring assets uh, to the balance sheet is not only uh, an investor uh, ranking issue, but it's also, do you have an, an issuer appetite for it? In government, is that even permissible under certain laws? So we are watching it. We've looked at it, but the actual test for it and the actual assessment and what we think of it will come when this these are adopted and the way that they're adopted. On the Breakfast Grill this morning is Bashar Anato, Global Head of Islamic Finance Fitch Ratings. After the break, can Malaysia be the centre of Islamic finance and hang on to being the top issuer of Sukkot in the world? BFM 89.9. You are listening to The Breakfast Grill. Brought to you by U-Mobile, Malaysia's number one 5G network. BFM 89.9, welcome back to The Breakfast Grill, where in the hot seat this morning is Basha Arnato, Global Head of Islamic Finance, of course also Managing Director of Fitch Ratings. Before the break, why Suko is a natural partner to sustainability and is standardisation in the horizon? Basha, we talked about the macroeconomic environment, but I, I want to talk about investor demand. I think there's potential issuance of up to 160 to 170 billion this year. And I know a lot of the GCC countries will be issuing more bonds because of their own transformation, economic transformation programs like Saudi Arabia. But will there be demand for this? Where is demand going to come from? Okay, I think, uh, yes, we expect to first of all, as you said, on the supply side, diversification of funding initiatives by government, 
by banks also and by corporates is supportive of that in addition to that maturities and the development of that capital market for Islamic finance sector. So this is all, as you said, on the demand side. Now, the supply side, i.e. the investor side, it has, as I said, three pockets, mm. the international investor and their this falls mostly in the allocation for emerging markets because the vast majority of countries of reserve finance is an emerging market. And with the lower interest rates, we could see that improve, i.e. the appetite of the international investor towards emerging market. That's also scoop. As I said, that the Islamic investors, regional Islamic investors, specifically in the GCC, which is Islamic banks, their liquidity position is, is, is still adequate and healthy which allows them to have allocations also for investments of support, which also supports the supply side. Wondering whether there will be more demand coming from mainstream investors, not just Islamic, because is there demand coming okay. from them over the last okay. few years? Okay, there is two drivers for that. Yes, so the short answer to that, yes, we're seeing increased demand from the international investors for Sukuk, but mm. the drivers for that is not necessarily related to Sukuk itself. The drivers for that is, as I said, we're expecting more investors' appetite towards the emerging market. That's one. Mm. Secondly, in countries where you have Islamic finance as active, specifically if you're talking about the likes of Saudi Arabia, UAE, and other GCC countries, the debt, their entry to debt is something that's really relatively new. So there is appetite for that type of debt c- coming from these issuers. You have to bear in mind that almost 80% of the scoop that we rate globally is investment grade. So that plays a role here, as you can say, I'm not talking to Sukuk, I'm talking mm. still risk appetite, I'm talking emerging market, because you're asking about the international investor. But that does not come without a challenge. Many of the international investors, although that has improved significantly, i.e. the understanding of Sukuk, and its, its dynamic dimension and acceptance by the international investors has increased in the past decade significantly. But still small, I mean, the potential is still high. There is challenges of complexities, uh, lack of uh, confidence in the enforceability of rights, uh, legal systems, uh, credit stories. So that in the international investor mind, that's present. It is on a trajectory trend improving, but the actual potential is still higher. But this is also not only related to Sukuk and Islamic finance, but the growth story of the debt capital market, where Islamic finance, on top of more familiarity with uh, Islamic finance itself. Islamic finance itself, as you correctly had, has its own challenges of standardization, mm. has its own challenges of are we going to do this here in a Sharia compliant way? This is different. How is that going to impact the whole story? But that's another discussion. Okay, Bashir, I would think that the default rate, and this is a Fitch figure, right? The default rate last year for Sukkot is only 0.2%. I thought that would be very attractive to any investor. So I want to know, isn't that an, a catalyst? Uh, and the other question is, how is that possible to have such a low default rate? Because I'm going to assume that this figure is much, much lower than the conventional bond market. So I will link it to the development story of the debt capital market where Sukuk is. So if I am looking at countries in the GCC, do we have a higher default rate in the bond side? Mm. The answer is no. So we don't have, the thing is, it has to do with where Sukuk is rather than what Sukuk is. So it's not, because Sukuk is a safer instrument. Actually, the vast majority of Sukuk, we rate it in a pari stage with a, with a bond. So it carries the same risk from that perspective. But because the Sukuk is coming from certain countries, and as I said, around 80% of the, our rated uh, universe is investment grade, you're talking about market that's still developing. You don't have defaults in general in the debt capital market lit in the bonds, let alone Sukuk. 
So it's it's not a representation of a lower risk instrument, but it's a representation of the issuer rather than the instrument itself. And I hope the differentiation is clear there. Okay. Um, and we have to talk about Malaysia because we are actually the largest issuer of Soko. 38%, albeit most in ringgit. We are also, of course, one of the most developed debt capital markets. But do you think we are at risk of losing our edge to Indonesia and GCC? How can we ensure strong cross-border demand? I think the answer is in your question. We said that the vast majority of issuance is in ringgit. Mm. So there is no actual hub status there. It is more of a local story. You have a developed market compared to emerging market, other emerging market in Asia, that is sufficiently uh, satisfying the local demand and the local supply. That does not mean that Malaysia is a destination for listing of international support. That does not mean that Malaysia is a destination of international investors really entering there, although we have them. But there is challenges, currency volatility and what have you. But it's not. So the hub status, in my mind, it is more of a local center that is developed and most evolved when it comes to regulations, frameworks, uh, Sharia standardization. That's true. Mm. And it's an example. It's an advanced example. But it does not mean that it is competing with someone else to take. So Indonesia, if it grows locally, it's competing with itself. If Saudi Arabia grows its local market, it's competing with itself, more or less. Having something on the international scale is saying, for example, that London Stock Exchange or DIFC, NASDAQ DIFC, is an international Sukuk listing center. Okay, here I would understand. Mm. Malaysia is an example of an evolved Islamic uh, uh, finance ecosystem that I think many look up to, but it is not a destination to put money or raise money. So it will continue to be there. And I think what will happen is the actual representation with time, if this continues, of Malaysia in the global Sukuk market will become smaller, not because of Malaysia ringgit market or debt capital market growing smaller, but because of others growing their market. And that actually, we've seen that in the past year. So I would say it is the story there continues to be a local one. It has its own challenges when it comes to many dimensions, currency uh, volatility, and this is a barrier maybe to entry for some investors, not for others. But at the end of the day, you have a, a developed, relatively developed local currency market that is satisfying the needs. And that, I think, is, 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 is there. And we expect that to continue. Yeah, so, which begs the questions, since don't we actually have the ingredients to be more of an international hub then? What's holding us back? I think the, the question is, is there an ambition to be an international hub or not? So, I think the question is, is there that ambition that, does really Malaysia wants to open its market uh, for international issuers and international investors or not? Mm. And I think that is the key question because at the end of the day, opening it up means that the control of what's happening in that market becomes less. For example, if you have a significant part of your investors coming internationally, in higher interest rates, the ap appetite for emerging markets becomes less or in higher volatility, and then you will have that being withdrawn from your market. So the question is, is there an actual uh, will and strategy to develop it further or not? And I think we, that, that the answer to that is still to be seen. Okay, in the meantime, of course, you've mentioned the ringgit and the ringgit is, well, hasn't been doing very well at all. It's close to 5% down on a year-to-date basis. 
against the US dollar perilously close to the lowest we saw during the Asian financial crisis. How much of this is a, a deterrent to foreign investors for Ringgit Suko especially? Okay, there is two big limitations uh, for the entry of international investor or even Middle Eastern investor to the ringgit market. One of them, as you correctly said, is the volatility of the currency itself. And can they afford that volatility? Do they have the right tools to budget or do they have the right appetite or do they even have the appetite to do that? And here I'm talking about the Islamic investors and also the international investors. But you have to add also another dimension. For the Sharia-sensitive investors, many of them do not enter the Malaysian market because they do not consider that many of these instruments are Sharia-compliant. So let alone of the currency mm. volatility, many markets in the Middle East and the GCC would say that these, this instrument or that instrument is not Sharia-compliant. So let alone of the volatility, they cannot invest in it because it does not fit their Sharia standards. And I think these are two key limitations to entry or barriers to entry when it comes to the Malaysian local currency. And one last question for me, which is the comparison between the size of the conventional bond market, which some estimate is 135 trillion US dollars. Now, compare that to the eventual market size of a trillion. I think that's the medium-term goal, right, for, for Sukuk. How much larger can the Sukuk market grow? What's the real potential? Can we be half, one quarter that of the conventional? <laughs> okay, uh, the, uh, what I can say, and let me make, there is a lot of dimensions that you can gauge this. So you have at least uh, uh, three countries in the G20 that are uh, Muslim majority countries. There is between 20 to 25 of the population of Earth being Muslims. I'm not saying that all Muslim countries are going to do this. I'm not saying that all Muslims are, 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 uh, have, have the confidence in Islamic finance. But, you, but that will give you a gauge of the size of the economy of Islamic finance. So that's the starting point, let's say. So if I'm looking at that, I think the starting point is to look at the size of the Islamic countries' economies. Maybe start with OIC countries, 57 countries. What is their size of the economy? And what's their size of the debt market? And what is the ambition to that? And any cal- under any calculation, the potential is vast. Now, has that? do we expect that to be realized anytime soon? I would say no. There is a lot of limitations and barriers and and development that needs to take place for this to transform to a bigger story. So we still do expect that the Sukuk market over the medium term, at least, to stay relatively smaller than the conventional one, but on a growth trajectory. On that note, thank you for your time today on The Breakfast Grill. Was Bashar Al-Natohi is Managing Director and Global Head of Islamic Finance at Fitch Ratings. I'm Wong Shaoning, BFM 89.9. The BFM Breakfast Grill, brought to you by U-Mobile, Malaysia's number one 5G network. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.